0: Hi, I'm Yining Chang, and today I'm here with Dr. Giovanni Mantia, who's going to tell us all about his new book, Lawmaking Under Pressure, International Humanitarian Law and Internal Armed Conflict, published 2020 by Cornell University Press. Dr. Giovanni Mantia is university lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge. He is also fellow of Christ College, Cambridge, and of the Lauterbach Center for International Law. Dr. Mantia received his PhD in political science in 2013 from the University of Minnesota. He's held postdoctoral positions at Princeton University's Near Center for Globalization and Governance and at Brown University's Watson Institute for International Studies. His research investigates the politics of international lawmaking through multinational archival research with emphasis on the international law of armed conflict and human rights law. His research has appeared in leading academic journals in international relations and international law. Most recently, Dr. Mantilla published his first book, Lawmaking Under Pressure, International Humanitarian Law and Internal Armed Conflict. In the book, he traces the origins and development of the International Humanitarian Treaty Rules that now exist to regulate internal armed conflict and explores the global politics and diplomatic dynamics that led to the creation of such laws in 1949 and in the 1970s. The book, was an, uh, the book was recently rewarded the prestigious annual 2021 Francis Lieber Prize from the American Society of International Law as the best book in the field of the law of armed conflict. I really enjoyed reading this book and I learned a lot and I'm so glad to have Giovanni here today to tell us more about the book and about his work. Hi Giovanni. Hi Yining. Congratulations on the Francis Lieber Prize and on this wonderful book um, which I genuinely enjoyed from start to finish. Um, could you get us started by telling us how you came to write this book and about, you know, the history and the prehistory of this, of this project?
1: Sure. Thank you. And first, let me start by thanking you for the, the kind invitation. This is my first ever podcast, and so I'm very excited to do it with, with you as well. Um, so this book, I think that as for anyone who's writing a book, there, there is probably a mix of a combination of reasons, uh, personal and professional or intellectual that was the case for me so on the personal side i am colombian i was born and raised in colombia and i grew up uh, at a time the 1990s when the armed conflict there was quite active uh with atrocities uh committed by the state uh state uh, paramilitaries and military um and but also non-state armed groups rebel groups um and so and the new, the, the violence was constantly uh, featured in the news, uh, and so as a sort of a young person worried about what was going on and trying to understand what could be done about it, uh, uh, I'm, it was often mentioned in the news the potential role of international law for tempering some of that uh, some of that violence. And so the that that experience of growing up uh, in Colombia kind of planted a seed, an interest in in kind sort of thinking about uh, international uh, mechanisms and regulations and how they may help to ameliorate violence uh, in the ground. And so so that was a personal one. On a more professional side, uh, I became a PhD student uh, at the University of Minnesota in political science, and I was uh, looking for an interesting topic to write my PhD dissertation. At that point, I had already been thinking about international law for some time, particularly human rights law, with regards to corporations. Um, but after a couple years of working on that, I I didn't want to, to think about corporations anymore. And I was uh, considering other, what other realms of international law were relevant for so-called non-state actors. Uh, and so I kind of went back to my uh, earlier interest in trying to figure out what uh, international law could, uh, could say, how it could uh, ameliorate the violence occurring uh, within civil wars and internal armed conflict. And so that was kind of the a connection that I made there. Uh, originally, I should say that the project was meant to look at um, why rebel groups uh, in civil wars adopt pretty different attitudes and strategies towards international law. I would have been looking at the FARC and the UN in the Colombian context, uh, but then quickly I realized that was going to be very challenging, risky kind of research. Um, and so I went back to uh, to kind of thinking about the, the law itself um, and trying to, in, in, in the process of learning what it was exactly that international humanitarian law prescribed for civil wars, I realized that we didn't actually have uh, any good political stories as to why this branch of law regulating a very sensitive area of, of, of states um realm of governance uh, uh, existed so we don't know we didn't know where politically where these rules came from uh, why they uh, were designed in the way that they were designed there was a lot of legal literature um, around sort of describing them the rules and describing cases uh, in which they had been applied or not uh, but again very little reference to kind of the politics uh, of the of the, the process of emergence uh, which is what I as a political scientist, was interested in exploring, and and voila, that's how I kind of arrived at the at this question of of you know why this uh, rules for international for international rules for internal conflicts exist.
0: I like the way um, you put it um, because it really um, puts at the forefront the historical nature of, of of this project and of this study. You know this. I mean, it's not like I personally need any convincing about um, doing IR in a historical way. But could you talk a little bit more about you know? this historical approach? Why take such an approach to IR and to um, international humanitarian law in particular?
1: It's a great question. And it's one that continues to puzzle uh, myself and and other scholars and other scholars continue to puzzle about it. Uh, And there's a, a, you will see soon uh, emerging a wave of new research about historical international relations. Handbooks are being published uh, on this, um, the history of IR but also the history of, of international law has become a real growth industry and in a good sense of the word there's a lot of really interesting work coming up so I'll speak first to why a historical approach to IR and then and then a little bit about IHL in particular so I um, I mean, my general sense, and, and I think you share this as well, is that, is that more and better and more detailed and expansive history is always better. We should always sort of uh, across the board take on, on, on the task of more historicizing. Um, in the case of international relations or, or IR, um, for reasons of, of historical disciplinary development, the relationship between IR and history has been pretty fraught um, and particularly the, the aspiration of doing IR as a science in, in particularly in the American context of, of within of international relations being a subfield uh, of political science, pushed the discipline away from its traditional historical uh, approach, uh, historical bent towards a much more theoretical sort of theory first approach um, which as a result sort of left us with a uh, you know a tenuous, I think, uh, approach to history, at least from as related to that to the to the theorizing that emerged from that from that move, um, and I recently co-authored a chapter uh, with Karsten and Schulz on on the history of IR uh, with regards to the history of international law, um, and so that will be coming out uh, next year uh, as part of the Cambridge History of International Law, the first volume of that series. So um, so anyway, so there was a turn to theory to making. Theory, the kind of the first and foremost uh, priority of, of the field of international relations. Um, and, and that, as I said, had, kind of had an impact with kind of the robustness, on the robustness with which uh, IR theorists approached history. I mean, in general terms, you can speak of, uh, of, of approaches, there's a range of theories, as in any field in international relations, uh, some of which approach history in a more instrumental way, so to speak. And others that that approach in I think in a more, much more robust way. Uh, the more instrumental approach is, is the more mainstream approach. Uh, it, it begins with with kind of laying out theoretical expectations, theoretical hypotheses, which are of course built on the basis of bits of history. They're they're I see theory as encoded history, um, and then having those expectations, then scholars proceed to test test those claims. Uh, Um, across the board, uh, uh, you know, across a population of cases that they've identified, uh, you know, across space and time, depending on on, on who the scholar is. Um, So that's the more mainstream approach uh, in IR. Other approaches that are more common outside the U.S. um, I think are more robust. They build theory from the ground up more inductively, uh, taking history much more seriously, uh, sometimes only to, to explain a specific case and others uh, in other cases to more to an aspiration to uh, a, a more to broader applicability without it being kind of broad, broad generalization, just broader applicability. Uh, um, so both of these approaches have virtues, so I'm not I'm not slamming either of them, uh, but I found myself personally dissatisfied um, uh, because I found that both types of theorizing were based on very partial readings of, of history or, you know, very partial ex- excavations of history and didn't really, the, the, the mechanisms, the theories, the claims do not really allow me to capture the complexity of the historical process that I was beginning to see as I encounter the, the sources and the materials that, that I, that I uh, collected for the project. Um so that's kind of the the i r the, the i r side of, of of my response in terms of IHL, the reasons um uh, expand beyond theory um i mean the one one very blunt way and i think still unfortunately uh fair uh although changing is is that the our knowledge of uh international humanitarian law remains fairly limited of of its history i mean uh, of its political origins and what kinds of dynamics permeated uh, the the creation or the decision not to create particular rules uh, at particular times, um, and what those political calculations may mean for the implementation of, of those rules in practice. And again, uh, you know, this is changing, more historical work is now emerging, uh, and there are some general histories, but, but by and large, uh, those histories tend to be quite uh, synoptic Quite panoramic, um, and 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 they um, they miss a lot of the, the the interesting politicking, compromising, the details that I think are so rich and that merit uh, richer uh, an analysis and, and theorizing. And in the case of IR, just to go back to IR, I mean I am an international relations scholar, and so um, IR long ignored uh, the laws of war or, or international humanitarian law because. Uh, scholars usually uh, just commonly thought that it was irrelevant in times of war. Uh, when the stakes are so high, why would states respect the law? Uh, and, uh, th- this attitude is, 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 obviously erroneous. Uh, there are, there's a huge degree of variation, uh, and the degree to which states respect or not the law and, and what the law does in general in, in the management of, of violence and interstate relations, um, but that was kind of the the, the, the attitude uh, initially, and so um, so now uh, um, this this new work of which I sort of in, within which I count myself is now kind of busying itself with trying to demonstrate to to, to present a nuanced and, and richer view uh, on uh, of what IHL is. IHL does not does only rarely uh, comprises absolute clear commitments. Uh, there's a lot of focus on um civilian protection, uh protecting civilians from the dangers of war. I IHL um IR scholars studying IHL uh um usually focus on trying to measure the extent to which various types of belligerents uh respect civilian protection, but they miss the fact that the law is actually not made absolute. It's often deeply qualified. There's, it involves a compromise between very difficult values to 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 reconcile military necessity and humanitarianism and if one misses that nuance, uh, if one does not understand the politics of, of that codification then one uh, can, can you know be unfair to the law uh, can ask too much of the law uh, uh, but also just misses the very interesting uh ways in which, you know, the law does some things, achieves some things in the world uh, while at the same time uh, failing to do others. And so that's, that's why I think a historical approach is really important. Uh, understanding the political origins and the political dynamics of the development and then subsequently of the application of the law, I think is, is fundamental if we want to make sense of, 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 of the law and of IR more generally.
0: There's an absolutely vital question there about what international law is and isn't and the debate over that. And I want to come to that um, in a minute, but because I'm part way a historian myself, I'm just going to indulge in some more questions about, about historical um, method. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on your sources and method um, in, in writing this history. So it's a large and moving cast of characters, and it's, it spans 150 years um, and you engage with the inner lives of institutions, legal experts, states, diplomats, actors in national liberation movements, and, and, and so many more. Um, can you tell us more about the kinds of sources you work with in this book, how you work with them, what some of the particular difficulties might have been?
1: Great. Thank you for asking that question, because I I'm, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, in this book. Um, whatever... You know, the readers may think about the argument. Uh, I, I think that the contribution in terms of the use of sources and the unearthing uh, of a range of sources that have been previously untapped, untapped is going to be perhaps a more long-lasting contribution of, of, of the book. So in the book, I use a range of sources um, that span already published or secondary sources, articles, books, etc. cetera, that, that already existed. But more excitingly and importantly, a range of primary sources, uh, particularly archival documents, archives, documents from the archives of governments, uh, seven governments, uh, as well uh, uh, of the archives of the International Committee of the Red Cross. I also did some interviews with participants uh, uh, in the negotiations of the 1970s. Some of whom remain alive and have since passed. Actually, since I interviewed them, um, and and uh, but but really, uh, what comes to the fore. Uh, when one reads the book, is the importance of the archival uh, documentation. Um, so uh, the basic challenge with archival research is that is that it's first hoping that you will actually get a hold of the documents that you know that, that that you need in order to make sense of the question, to answer the question that, that you're posing. You re- you never really know. I mean, when you when I drafted my PhD project, uh, you're kind of making a promise that you don't know that you're going to be able to you know, to to follow through with. Um, So I was very lucky that having identified some of the the key uh, players, the key states that that participated in the negotiations, in the international debates around international humanitarian law, its revision, and then subsequently also uh, in conversations about the rules for internal armed conflict, uh, these states were prominent, uh, were powerful states, well-resourced states that produced a lot of very detailed documentation, attesting to the fact that they we're deeply, deeply in, involved in the process that they saw themselves as leaders uh, of the creation of IHL. And that information was then duly archived and, and then made available to researchers uh, like myself. When I, when I went to the diplomatic archives of the UK, uh, France, uh, the US, Switzerland, um, I also subsequently did a couple of research in Colombia and Mexico, um, and in Ireland. Um, and so, um, so that's kind of the initial challenge, hoping that you'll find something. Um, uh, I often joke that it's particularly uh, the richness of the British National Archives that have kind of made my career, that it is the thoroughness of the, of the both of British diplomacy, uh, of its, you know, its self-perception and its involvement in leadership in, in multilateral processes and the production of documents that comes with that, but also the the I think the, the money that is put into the UK National Archives that really uh, enabled me to trace the process that I, the political process that I, I was interested in understanding. Uh, so the UK National Archives are particularly outstanding, and for anyone who is in who is interested in studying the, the history of international institutions and law, uh, that is an an invaluable source. Um, the French and the American archives had a lot of information, but it was less less detailed and less complete um and so to that i mean that's that's an associated challenge right so you you have to try to navigate and manage the potential biases that are encoded in the both in the production of these documents and in their archiving process so there are incentives Uh, one has to think about the incentives that uh, statesmen and states peoples uh have uh, uh, to uh, portray their reasoning their motivations their strategies uh, faithfully, let's say, uh, in putting them down on paper, knowing that they will have to then, that, that these documents are going to be read subsequently. So there are potential biases that, that may be encoded in the documents. And then governments themselves obviously subject the archive documents to to checks and, and make decisions on what to make available and what not to make available. And so that's another potential source of vi- bias. And so I had to think about how to overcome those, I was, I was very fortunate that in the huge documentary trove that I found, um, uh, only very specific bits of the story, uh, remained unclear. Um, by and large, the puzzles that I was, uh, focusing on had an answer and had an answer that, 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 uh, may, because it was uh, as, you know, when, when, when people read the book, uh, they will notice that, that some of these states, Uh, were in dialogue with one another as they were negotiating in Geneva. So the Brits were in touch with the French, the Brits were in touch with the Americans. There was a dialogue there. And so through that, if you will, triangulation of sources, I was able to kind of check on, you know, what was going on, my interpretation of what was going on. uh, And, you know, allowed me, it it would allow me to spot potential silences, things that that one state may have been wanting to hide. But by and large, the, the, the dialogue these states were having uh, was borne out in the documents in, in, a, in a traceable way. Uh, there were other challenges. Uh, um, I have I've mentioned that I you know, went to the archives of, of, of powerful states, um, and partly that was for reasons of, of substantive reasons that they were protagonists of the processes. Um, uh, but there were other non great power states uh, that were absolutely fundamental to the research, uh, to the the political process that I'm tracing. And I, because my knowledge of of the accessibility of those archives in the global south, and in general, the archives of the global south uh, um, are still, um, continue to be uncharted territory for many, uh, especially for political scientists. Um, uh, So barriers of access, barriers of knowledge, uh, barriers of language, of course, of time as well. Um, and and there, so there were things that I would have would have. There were states where I would have wanted to do some archival research, and not not I have to say not just third world states or global south states, but also major powers like the Soviet Union, which which uh, unfortunately make access Russian. The Russian archives are not, from what I hear, not particularly easy to access, uh, even for you know the nineteen forties, the things that happened a long time ago. Um, and so those are additional challenges that you have to you have to navigate uh, access time. And money Uh, in terms of the method, just briefly, um, I, I use the method that that is commonly referred to in political science as process tracing, uh, which is, which does what it says it does. You know, you trace a process, you trace a political process and you try to understand, uh, what, uh, what are the the mechanisms? This is a bit of social science talk. What are the, uh, dynamics that explain why thing, why, why, uh, one outcome obtains in a particular negotiation and you have a sort of a a battery of potential so-called mechanisms. um, And and you see, you're able to see with the documents, the archival documents, documents, you're able to see which of these mechanisms is actually at play. And and what I discovered was that none of those theoretical mechanisms, as I was saying earlier, uh, those existing uh, uh, hypotheses and hunches didn't really capture the complexity of, 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 of the process. And so that's what allowed me to innovate uh, um, and to, to, to make, I think, some potentially, um, you know, important and, and productive uh, conceptual contributions.
0: The the process tracing um, method is, is super interesting to me because um, this is, to a pretty large extent, a, a story about process, um, political process, as you put it, in the, in the introduction, I think. And one of the things that really struck me about the process, um, the story of the process that you tell, is how much of international lawmaking is not actually about making law. So I'm thinking about um, how the ICRC moved through different strategies to avoid pursuing legal codification, how the powerful liberal empires spent a fair bit of energy trying to make those legal codes indefinite and imprecise. So I wonder if that, you know, that international lawmaking as not actually are completely about making law? I wonder if that's a fair reading of the story in the book. And if so, how should that shape the way we ought to think about what international law is and how we tell its history? That's
1: a great question. I think that's absolutely one of the, uh, the, the, the takeaways that I hope readers get from the book. So many things are said about international law. Um, on the one hand, and, and what it is for. On the, on the one hand, people say that international law is about solving problems. And getting things done, states identify a problem and they, they come to an agreement to try to improve it, fix it. Others, from a more critical perspective, say that that international law is about exerting control and, and domination. Uh, and from a more, in, in IR parlance, more constructivist perspective, uh, international law often is about normative change and moral transformation. What I want to, to bring to the surface um, in the book is the point that, that so those things may be true <laughs> to some degree, uh, but international law is not just about dealing with substantive issues, about fixing problems, about generating normative change in the stroke of a pen by creating law. International law is a, international lawmaking is a diplomatic process Um uh, that involves, engages state, the management of states' social relations with one another, their perceptions. It's about man, uh, the, the management of their image. It's, a much, it's, it's as much about performing uh, in, in a global stage, in a global codification stage in the context of these diplomatic conferences um, uh, as it is about producing substantive outcomes. Um, so there's a lot of politics there um, you know, states care about how they are perceived, about where they land in the kind of the balance of opinions that are, that obtains within a negotiating room, how that uh, social positioning, if they end up being sitting, you know, taking the side of, of a state that's perceived as an international pariah, um, how that may harm their own standing internationally. Um And and so they manage that they try to they they worry about what their social positioning within lawmaking conferences might mean for for their own uh, you know for how they're perceived. And so you're absolutely right. International law is not uh, international lawmaking is often not just about fixing problems and dealing with substance, but it is about uh, managing uh, social relations and about governing together, even. Uh, when there is is deep disagreement Um, and so the repressions of audience perceptions uh, domestically internationally Um, and so in the book I I pay sort of great attention to this clash between evolving humanitarian aspirations on the part of some states and some non-state actors like the ICRC and the more uh, enduring particularistic interests of states. Also we can speak uh, more to the to the ICRC later, but obviously the the you know, the evolution, even though that's not the right word, the transformation of of the the aspirations and the attitudes of of, of non uh, non-state uh, principled uh, non entrepreneurs uh, like the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross. So states are entangled in a competing web, in a web of competing pressures that involves their domestic interests, their normative aspirations and demands placed upon them, but also diplomatic standing and image, uh, uh, as well as multilateral governance, which is what often, you know, international law is, is thought to be primarily doing. Um, and so the theorizing that we have uh, in IR, I wager does not allow us to capture the the, 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 the to, to, to understand how these things, these different pressures and impulses come together in the context of a diplomatic conferences conference. Uh, and how states manage to uh, reconcile them, uh, to engage to create compromises that are encoded within law, and then what that what that compromising then means for the law after codified, for the law's so-called life cycle
0: the three um the three main concepts that that you developed to to um, make this central argument are normative pressure, forum isolation, and compromise, or at least three of the main concepts um, that you introduce. So um, you conceptualize the making of these laws as a process of normative pressure followed by forum isolation, and you describe the laws themselves as products of compromise. I particularly enjoyed the passages in compromise, but I wonder if you could tell us about each of these three concepts and um, what they allowed you to recover about the history of these laws and about these laws that. Um, you know, present theorizing in IR may not help us do as well.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, so normative pressure, let's begin there. Um, I should say that obviously the concept, the the idea and, and uh, the, also the demonstration that, that social pressures of various types matter in international politics is not a new contribution. This is not something that I am inventing. Um, It's something that I am, Building upon to try to get at some things that had previously been under analyzed or skipped over uh, by previous theorizing. So normative pressure resembles uh, kind of a, a battery of, of, of uh, uh, um, a set of constructivist uh, concepts about how international norms emerge and then and become uh, legislated upon, become international law. Um, the concept of norm entrepreneurship, which you may have mentioned already, uh, is, is a very common one now. Um, and uh, what I wanted to capture through the through the notion of normative pressure specifically was, is the idea that norm entrepreneurs are, are often taken to be sort of principled actors that are busy bodies in, the, in in the sense that they're trying to push norms forward, generating positive, progressive normative change, uh, and they're sort of uh, responding to a principled stance. Uh, and that's kind of the, the normative uh, the, sorry, their the normal mode of operation. And what I found in the case of, 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 of this uh, branch of international humanitarian law for internal conflicts was that the principle uh, the main and norm entrepreneur actually needed to be pressured itself uh, uh, to um, take up take up the task, take up the goal, Uh, the aspiration of of so-called humanizing uh, internal armed conflict through law. And that pressure came from actors on the ground, the actors that were facing uh, civil war atrocity or internal war atrocity on the ground. And I, um, this, this is particularly in chapter two of the book uh, and sort of in the historical time was sort of 1910, between 1910 and 1920. So, throughout the first world war uh, with the fall of, of several empires uh, generating lots of internal instability uh, uh, and, and, and violence challenges to the to, to existing forms of governance and and a lot of internecine and intestine violence uh, emerging uh, in the context of for instance of the Russian Civil War the Russian Revolution um, but also the, the following the fall of the, of the Ottoman Empire empire and so it was the actors that were at the forefront on the ground facing this atrocity that that then ad- attended international conferences and convinced pressure pressured the international committee of the red cross which is a, a, a Geneva based body of mostly swiss people uh, that this was a good idea the icrc had been doing uh, to be clear the icrc had been doing things about internal armed conflict various types since its creation but it had uh not been willing to embrace the 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 idea of uh creating of expanding ihl to internal armed conflicts uh, uh because you know because it was a very delicate area for states um and and the icrc we can we can talk about this later on if you, if you want to um the icrc operates with the consent of states. And so it is in the ICRC's interest not to push states' buttons too harshly. Um, uh, And and this was a particularly difficult area uh, uh, for for various reasons, uh, particularly dealing with state sovereignty, right? Um, And so the ICRC itself had to be pressured. And so the normative pressure argument uh, part of the concept tries to capture the idea that it's not just about norm entrepreneurship and principled actors; uh, it's also about the pressure that they that needs to be placed upon them from the bottom up, which is also normative, right? Uh, so that's why that, that concept made sense. Uh, forum isolation is 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 one kind of component mechanism of of of, of a process of social pressure during uh, lawmaking processes. Once codification conferences are are, are sort of get going, um, I study. The social dynamics of positioning between states, and I identify the interesting dynamics that emerge, uh, that obtain, when majorities of states are formed, uh, that then, that that, that a rally behind an issue, such as the issue of uh, humanizing uh, internal armed conflict, and and put a couple of states, a handful of states, in a minority position, uh, uh, which they then find very uncomfortable uh, to find themselves in th- th- those in the minority. And so that's the, th- th- that process of that dynamic pressure between majorities and minorities is, is what I call forum isolation. Uh, the UK, the, uh, the, the French in particular were put in an utter minority in 1949. And I show in the book, how deeply felt that, how, how embarrassing that was, um, how politically damaging that was thought to be by, uh, these uh, diplomats from these States. Um, and and so I coined the concept of forum isolation to, to try to capture that pressure. Now that, that kind of dynamic has come up, obviously people have identified it in, 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 in other historical processes, but, but it hadn't been, um, uh, conceptualize theorize in that way and and demonstrate it uh, through you know the detailed evidence that I, that I have that i have done and then on compromise so compromise is also obviously not a new notion um, I, so i don't claim novelty there but curiously enough um and I, th- I think in practice most uh the the best um, ir work um, and and international legal work on international law recognizes that most law is a compromise, and yet very few arguments, very few theories put compromise uh, at the center of their theorizing. Uh, So in the case of IR, people will have heard of the theory of realism, for instance, uh, for which um, the main mechanism is really one of control and domination on the part of powerful states. Then there are the more strategic uh, variants of international theory that argue that states create uh, law uh, as a rational bargain, uh, as a contract between two parties that are more or less aware of what they're getting into, uh, more or less in agreement of what they are kind of giving up. It's a trade-off. That's what a bargain means. And then for constructivists, uh, it's common to speak to, speak of norms as uh, and law as encoding norms that are that represent a shared agreements, uh, what what they call intersubjective agreements, and so all of these notions um, kind of give a sense of settledness of outcome, right? So something is either uh, you know a, 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 a control instrument uh, or a contract, a bargain or a norm, rather than a jumble of of, of various loosely, uh, very tensely uh, uh, reconciled. Motivations and interests, um, and so that's what—that's why I like the notion of, of compromise. Um, and I, in particular, uh, because I am aware that, comp- that that saying that, that law is a compromise is, is no novelty. I want it to be more precise and to refer to the notion of law as a face-saving compromise. To try to, to 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 convey the importance of of of, of image management. Uh, in the creation of, of of much law, I don't think that this dynamic is isolated uh, or is unique uh, to this branch of law. And I've been doing uh, some other work uh, around IHL, uh, but but also beyond beyond it, to, to try to to theorize and demonstrate that these dynamics of compromising and, and and these management of image and perceptions and social relations really permeates a huge swathe of of, of of international law. And I wanted I define in the book. Uh, compromise as a collective act, uh, uh, as a momentary achievement in political struggle. I wanted to, to not convey a sense of settledness. I wanted to convey a sense of of contestedness uh, in the very moment of of, of 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 pre the creation of of law. Uh, law is, as Philip Allad memorably said, a disagreement put into writing. And so I think that the notion of compromise as a momentary achievement, an achievement in the sense that, you know, something came out, something was agreed upon. Uh, um, but it was the subject of political struggle and codifies political struggle that 's what i i i think the notion of compromise is is doing and face saving compromise to 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 highlight the fact that these are um laws uh that were made uh with you know involving these pressures around image and and performance in in the face of audiences around you know humanitarian values um at a particular point in time
0: i wanted to turn for a second um to that Moment of decolonization, Um, so that moment after 1949, um, and I was thinking about the role played by newly decolonized states. Um, The example that stuck out to me was the example of Burma, which was faced with various armed struggles waged by ethnic minorities. And you describe in the book um, at some points how the Burmese delegation, uh, the Burmese delegation resisted attempts to include internal conflicts in the conventions and how it used sovereignty discourse to publicly mount this resistance. In my reading, and again, I wonder whether you think this is this is a fair reading, your book joins some more recent works in um, international history that are highlighting the complexity of the moment of decolonization by pointing out the conservative as well as the radical potential of this moment. And I wonder if you see this project, um, as part of that, part of that, um, shift or move or, or ongoing work in the literature.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, so it is true. And I think it's absolutely fundamental that, that the new histories that are written, particularly, I would say after World War I, uh, but, but, but more, more so even more so after World War II, that they bring to the fore the ways in which, um, post-colonial states, uh, so-called third world states, whatever you might want to call them, uh, how crucial and 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 um, central, yeah. What what, you know, what level of protagonism they actually attained in the the remaking of of international order and law. Um, I think that that's an absolutely essential corrective uh, to many of our received narratives. Uh, some of which emphasize the you know, the, the predominance of uh, hegemons uh, or great powers um, or the predominance of, of liberal values uh, waged, uh, leveraged primarily by Western states. Um, and so with some of these new histories, and I see myself doing this, bring to the fore the fact that, that it was often uh, those Western liberal states that were opposing the creation of new rules uh, uh, that dealt with with. Uh, Let's say the humane treatment of populations, right? And so, so that's that's an absolutely important test. And so, I see myself as as, as participating in that task. However, and this is this gets to the point of your question. I do uh, bring to the fore uh, the, the 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 historical fact that that some of these post-colonial states behaved like states um, uh, you know they were not just involved in a process of world making uh, to, to cite to to quote Adam Gattacheau, uh but uh, but uh, they were also they adopted they embraced the form uh, of state sovereignty with uh, its baggage as well as with its liberatory potential you know it has the self-determination side which was first and foremost what they were in you know what what, what you know Principal thing, if you will, although you know not to, to the uh, detriment of all others, but it was certainly the the, the initial thing, the prerogative. Uh, but in becoming states, they also adopted the, the you know the the baggage that comes to being a state, which is that states want to preserve their inter their territorial integrity. Uh, they are not happy to face armed challengers. Uh, they react uh, usually negatively to insurgencies. Um, and and that puts them in a more uh, conservative position, and and so that kind of dynamic, um, you know, whether the views of the it is true that the the views of these post-colonial states were, were, were transformative in some senses, they they also retain those those hang ups, um, and and I think that that. Um, that is a line a direction of research that the new work should continue to pursue uh, because we also don't want to end up with hagiographies ha- ha- geog- ha- geographies of, of third world states right we want to to, to, to be thorough and fair in our assessment uh, of, of what you know what it is that they did on on the on the diplomatic stage and and so some historical work gets to that but I think we still have a ways to go there um, so uh, the 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 book is not primarily about kind of the the historical evolution of, of of the notion of sovereignty uh but it is something that is in the back that that is a facilitating condition so to be more concrete in the post uh world war II moment we saw uh if you will uh uh revindication, a vindication uh and a reaffir- reaffirming of uh state sovereignty uh Understood as sort of state's legitimate uh, authority within their borders, monopoly, monopoly over the use of force, etc. Uh, um, but we also saw a, a, a growing relativizing uh, of sovereignty, a shift of meaning, a partial shift of meaning, and that had which had to do with new responsibilities of states towards their citizens um, uh, and towards others, citizens of other states, states as well. So obviously, I'm referring here. Uh, to, to the human rights uh, legal regime. Um, and so sovereignty itself was a compromise uh, in the post-war moment. And it reflected and encoded, codified these tensions. And you see this in the UN Charter, you see it in the Human Rights Covenants, you see it in, in a whole host of, of instruments, including IHL. And so and IHL is, in, in, in the, the kind of IHL that I'm looking at is particularly is perhaps I, I would say the most radical example of this, even even beyond human rights, because it brings uh, I think the sharpest relief the, the the tension between the protection of sovereignty and and so sort of hum- humane treatment of populations. Right. So we're talking here about law that compels states not to uh, you know massacre uh, rebels, not to Attack them with full force of military might, uh, uh, but to treat them as contenders that have uh, that are worthy of protection, uh, that have prerogative humanitarian prerogatives as well, uh, and that is a um, that that is that is a deeply uh, you know uh, sort of dangerous thing for states to do. That was there. It was a delicate, very delicate issue to deal with, um, and so. Um, uh, Post-colonial states were not uh, immune to that kind of uh, to that kind of attitude. Uh, you, we saw it in the case of Burma in 1949, but we saw it uh, a much more uh, a much more widespread uh, uh, dimension of it in, in the 1970s, when the large majority of the post-colonial states that had just become um, uh, sort of shed the shackles of, of imperialism were dealing with their own. Uh, how to organize themselves domestically and, and dealing with, with their own domestic instability. And we're very much not interested in uh, at least in accepting uh, international oversight over how they decided to treat those uh, domestic violent challengers. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so, so post-colonial states are what played a transformative role, but they also behave like states. Now, what I think, uh, future researchers should do is to try to understand what kinds of what kind of reasoning uh, was was uh, taking place in, uh, in, in 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 the diplomacy uh, of those uh, post-colonial states, uh, the the public argument that they used to oppose uh, the uh, extension of greater protections uh, for in the context of civil war. Was uh, a good one. Uh, it was a fear of intervention, of neo-interventionism, uh, by uh, their former colonizers, uh, which which has, was an argument that had obviously a lot of traction, a lot of resonance, right? But we don't know to what extent that was a strategic use of argument, uh, uh, rather than uh, you know a, a, a more cynical use of argument uh, to try to to uh, deny. Uh, internal armed challengers uh, uh, some basic protection. so so that that's I think a, a key question for the future and hopefully others can take it up um, I, I I might be able to as well later on
0: on a different um uh, at a different point in in the international hierarchy of states and empires, I thought this book was also very much a story, as you said earlier, about powerful states and empires and powerful empires, and the way they responded to feelings of status anxiety and vulnerability by um, engaging in what you term covert pushback. I wondered if your, inter- your focus on covert pushback was, in a sense, an intervention in the norm um, entrepreneurship literature, because it seems to me that um, contrary to some, obviously not all, but some perspectives on norm entrepreneurship, the history you tell suggests that normative change isn't enough because it relies on shifting public behavior. And because it relies on shifting public behavior, the propensity for states who are kind of internally privately um, unpersuaded, the propensity for these states to undertake covert pushback is to some extent baked into the process of norm entrepreneurship. Am I? I mean, is that a suggestion of the history you tell? Well, so
1: the covert pushback is is a dynamic that's sort of a reactive dynamic on the part of states that are not persuaded that that these that that these new laws should be codified because they react, uh, they, don't, they don't want them in the books. So the covert pushback is really on the part of the opponents of the norm entrepreneurship rather than on the norm entrepreneurs themselves. Now, what's interesting though, and I think this is maybe what you were getting at, which is that is, that, is a curious fact that, that um, one of the strategies that, um, that they adopt, which which I term here covert pushback, is that they try to become the, the strategy that, the, the, or the tactic rather that um, powerful states that oppose these rules uh, adopt in order to save face publicly, they go backstage um, they, and they try to take the reins off the drafting process. So they, in a sense, pose as norm interpreters halfway through the process once they realize that they um, cannot, uh, unless they choose to leave uh, the negotiating room, which they didn't, Um, that they cannot otherwise um, salvage their own uh, particularistic uh, interest uh, as well as their uh, public image. And so they, in a way, uh, hijack the norm entrepreneurship, uh, the process of norm entrepreneurship, in a way that, and this is a bit that remains unclear, uh, the extent to which the the original norm entrepreneurs, the original, let's say, humanitarians, uh, including the ICRC, realize that that's what's going on. Uh, um, but, uh, but, but but anyway, uh, the way that they do it is 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 they, that they did it in the cases that I document in the book in 1949, Britain Britain, France, uh, in the making of Common Article three, and then uh, subsequently in the making of uh, one of the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, the one that deals with national liberation of war. They do it in a very shrewd way, in a way that's kind of very that's deceptive. That that it that it, it's hard to ascertain whether what the what they're doing is sabotaging or or actually shifting their public position. Um, so that's I think what uh, what the the process of covert pushback is 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 trying to, to get at. It it incorporates, if you will, um, the reaction of those that are that oppose norm entrepreneurship, and it and it tells a story about how they. Hijack that uh, that process um, uh, in order to compromise um, the the more demanding commitments that that, that are being asked uh, that they're being asked to 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 uh, to take on.
0: The biggest question I then had at the very end of the book was about that positive note that I thought the book ended on. So despite the way um, um, you highlight that covert pushback, despite the way your account complicates the progressivist narrative about the, the development of these laws. You close the book with the thought that even when commitments are made insincerely, they can still have important effects. Now, the way you put it, I think, is that this invites us to think more about the productive power of hypocrisy. Would you describe this closing note as an, an optimistic take on international politics? I mean, can you talk more about how, how, how you end on that, on that note?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's right. I think that's a fair reading in the sense that I do in the conclusion, I think show a bit more of my own personal stance on this. Um, I guess I should begin by saying that I'm not a starry-eyed analyst of IHL. I understand that IHL both restrains and condones violence. It authorizes violence as much as it tries to limit it. So it's not about sort of being naive about the law. Um, I will say that that when it comes to the law of internal armed conflict that, that I document in theorize in the book by and large these were rules that states um, uh, the, the powerful states did not want um, these were rules that were pressured upon them that's hence the name of the book and that they very grudgingly um, um, uh, abided to acquiesce to formally uh, by by adopting um, the treaties at the end so um, so I would I would rather than a uh, an optimistic take on, on international politics or international law, I would say that it's a, it's a possibilistic uh, take uh, on it. One which shows that under certain conditions, um, at least at the level of law, some measure of change can be attained even against the will of those that are thought to be the stewards of international order, uh, powerful states of the U.S., uh, France, the U.K., uh, uh, but also you know, non-Western uh, um, great powers, like Russia and, and China. Now, those conditions are deeply historical, they're fragile. So it's not really a story about progress in the sense that I trace that from the 1940s onwards, things have gotten better progressively uh, uh, in terms of the law. In fact, to, to some degree, Additional Protocol 2 uh, is, um, you know, w- w- Represented uh, regress when it came, when compared to uh, the earlier rule, common Article Three in 1949. So it's not about progress in the sense that things are getting better every time, but it shows that um, that measure of change uh, against the wishes of the traditional, um, you know, gatekeepers uh, can be attained. But again, under specific circumstances, these are these are deeply contingent processes as well. Although obviously there are. Uh, trends over time that I trace that I, that I take take very seriously that enable uh, these possibilistic uh, uh, um, approach to bear fruit a- across across uh, different realms of governance right and I'm clearly he referring to the um, if you will the the universalization not just the fact that that that, that, that uh, we now have a world of almost 200 states not just Forty states, as we did in 1940, so we have a plural, a much more plural, universal uh, a cast of characters in the making uh, and remaking of international order, and and the evolution of the uh, of the form of multilateralism, and the, the the creation of law through universalist processes has allowed these smaller states, weaker states, uh, to uh, have a platform to have their voices heard and their views taken uh seriously uh, and subsequently codified into law even though again in a compromised way um and so so i would say that it's uh a, it's it's a, it's a book that traces change over time some of which some of that change can be uh, i think be viewed positively at least from the vantage point of uh restraining the hand of powerful states that used to uh that you know that that, that were uh, quite happy with treating uh you know their internal uh, challengers and colonies uh colonial challengers uh with utmost disregard um, and uh, but but you know the world is arguably i mean in, in terms of of the codified law states having wanted to take on more commitments uh, for internal arm many more commitments uh, for internal armed conflict, many lawyers recognize that if one if states were to negotiate um, uh, something like Common Article 3 right now, they probably would walk away empty-handed. So the world is, you know, so the conditions under which these rules emerge are very particular. Um, and so I think, yeah, so it's theorizing possibility rather than, than theorizing kind of optimism uh, and, and, you know, without, without uh, caveats and historical sensitive sensibility.
0: We've taken up so much of your time, um, and this has been really wonderful, very fascinating for me, um, and I'm sure for everyone also. I wondered if you could help us come to a close by telling us what you're working on next.
1: Sure, and and thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I've enjoyed the conversation. So I am engaged in a number of projects, um, some of which follow pretty closely the work that I did in this book. I've been working um, all along on other areas of the law of war, and so there are sort of law of war or, or kind of IHL specific projects that that try to, to historicize and theorize the emergence of IHL beyond uh, internal armed conflict law. Uh, so I've written papers on civilian protection uh, um, and I will soon be writing a paper on the role of national liberation movements in the negotiation of the 1970s rule rules uh in this may amount to a book may, there may be a follow-up book just about the 1970s moment which was so fascinating and rich um and so that's kind of an ihl specific uh set of projects and i also have another paper on the development of ihl after 1977 which has primarily occurred uh via customary law and claims about customary law so it's so another very interesting uh side of the story that. that uh, that actually contrasts pretty radically with the history that I tell in the book. Um, There are also a set of projects that are meant to try to gauge the extent to which my insights in this book, the theoretical insights, um, are able to explain uh, other cases in in related uh, and perhaps unrelated issue areas around the same time. So around the time of the 1960s and 1970s particularly, the book obviously tackles a huge uh, uh, span a uh, 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 historical uh, time, uh, but, but right now I'm really most fascinated about. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I've written a paper uh, trying to understand the negotiation of rules to uh, uh, of rules on uh, conventional weapons on the use of conventional weapons. I've collected a lot of material about human rights, um, and I'm also interested in thinking about about non sort of non law of war, non human rights issue areas. Like uh, economic governance, so the new international economic order as well, just to try to get a sense of what the limits are uh, of these conditions of possibility, of these mechanisms that I identify, and why we see that in some cases they lead to uh, they lead to codified rules, and in some cases they 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 don't. Uh, the more ambitious uh, project, which I've only just now begun to think about, is about um, um, the interplay between international law, diplomacy, and multilateralism. These are things that I've mentioned here in, in my answers, um, uh, but with specific regard to very particular moments, very particular instruments of law. Um, and I am interested in trying to think about the world, uh, in, in, in not, not just in the past, but particularly um, in the last three or four decades, as uh, not only regulated by international law, this kind of has become the narrative, right? The world is increasingly legalized, Law is, you know, there's a an empire of law internationally. Ian Hurt has famously, uh, I think, made this argument, and uh, and what I want what I want to do is sort of backtrack from that a little because I think we're over legalizing the world, uh, and we have forgotten that there are other ways in which states manage their relations, and those are traditional ways of, of doing it. But they are they they relativize law to some extent uh, while you know, while still, uh, um, uh, retaining a measure of, of multilateralism and diplomacy. So I'm just trying to think of how to theorize, um, you know, how states govern the world, not just through law, but also through fudging, uh, behavior, uh, and, and judgments about behavior to other managing, uh, their judgments in other realms, uh, even if, the, if that management may stop short of, of being compliant with international law. Uh, so that's something that, as you can tell, I'm still kind of beginning to, to conceptualize, but, but one that, that, that fascinates me, uh, which I think might be, it's kind of a longer term project that only you know, in 10 years or so, I will be able to have a, a, a clearer sense of, 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 you know, of what that amounts to after I've gained a lot more historical knowledge and historicized more, more processes.
0: I look forward to to reading that in 10 years to to that second book and that stunning array (laughs) of articles that's incredibly productive. And thank you so much. I mean, thank you so much for coming on to talk today. I've had a really great time talking with you, and I enjoyed the book very much.
1: Thank you again, Yuning. And thanks for everyone listening.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Giovanni Mantia about his book, Lawmaking Under Pressure International Humanitarian Law and Internal Armed Conflict. Cornell University Press 2020. And you can find out more about the book by clicking on the bookshop link in the podcast description. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Yining Chang, and I'll see you soon.